I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, a guest host for CMAJ Podcasts. I'm a general internist at the University of Manitoba and a former associate dean of undergraduate student affairs. And today I'm joined by Dr. Moniza Walji. We're going to be talking about the CARMS interview process, answering questions that have been sent in by medical students from across the country trying to demystify CARMS. Hi, my name is Dr. Moniza Walji. I'm a resident at McGill University in hematology now. So the first set of questions that we got was about scheduling and logistics. One of the things that I noticed about my CARMS tour and CARMS process was sometimes I had multiple interviews that were suggested for the same day. So how would you handle multiple interviews in one day during this tour? So tough question, right? And this is one of the many uh, probabilities that people are balancing when these interview offers begin to come in. The short answer is it's going to be very difficult with the exception of uh, individuals who are interviewing uh, at the same university for multiple programs uh, to be in more than one place at one time. However, I think one thing that can be really helpful is to try to apply what I think of as a desired outcomes test. So if you're weighing two interviews that are occurring on the same day, one of the most important questions to ask yourself, aside from the fact of whether you can physically actually attend both interviews, whether that's possible or are they at the same university or not, the question really is, what would happen if on match day, I opened the computer and saw that I had matched to one of these programs? When I imagine that, does my heart just drop? Would it be better to me in this moment to imagine going unmatched than to imagine seeing that one of these programs is my match? And my advice is if your feeling is that you would rather go unmatched than go to that program, then don't attend that interview. Why do I say that? Because you're not going to be having interviews for the same specialty on the same day at one university. And if you're looking at programs that are occurring in different provinces or different sites in the same specialty, I think what you really need to do is ask yourself that tough question. Do I even want to go to this program? Because I do find that there can be a tendency for people to interview at programs that they really have no intention of ranking. You know, the second thing I encourage people to do is just really be open and honest. Programs understand that you are under incredible pressures and um, that the CARMS match is uh, more stressful for people than ever before in some ways. So, you know, I don't think you want to play coy. If you're trying to attend an interview and you have something else scheduled on the same day and you're trying to, for example, localize your interview to a particular part of the day so that perhaps you can attend a pediatrics interview in the morning and an internal medicine interview in the afternoon, my philosophy is to always be open with people and to say, you know, I'm, I'm trying to coordinate another interview. Is there any way I can uh, schedule this for a particular part of the day? I think most people do understand that. They also understand the wisdom of backup plans. So I guess what it boils down to is when you're communicating with programs, try to be open, try to be authentic, try to be honest, and don't be duplicitous. Don't say that you have a, you know, a family engagement if what you're really trying to do is go to two interviews. Most people, most program directors in this day and age understand that you have to cover as many bases as possible in order to feel confident going into the match. So coming off that topic, you talked about, you know, knowing exactly what would happen that CARMS day when you open the computer and being excited or sometimes disappointed by the outcome. In a similar vein, it's hard to know when the interviews start rolling in, 
what timing and when are things are going to happen. So is it bad form to RSVP for an interview now? And then at a later date, when you find out that, oh, actually, another program has invited me that I'd like to attend more um, to decline the interview later on in the process. I think doing that is absolutely legitimate and unfortunately a necessary part of the process. So if you think about it, the idea of it being bad form, do programs love it? Of course not. But programs also understand the reality of the CARMS match, the uncertainties that you're facing as a candidate, and the multiple variables that are always shifting. So my advice is, if you think you might actually attend that interview, um, you should accept that interview. And then if something changes and you no longer want to attend that interview for the kinds of reasons that we've talked about, it's okay to decline. Many program directors that I've talked to, you know, the programs do have wait lists sometimes for interviews. So it isn't as if you are necessarily depriving another candidate of the opportunity to interview. If people have been waitlisted, they may be invited subsequently. But the sad thing is I really see no way around it in this day and age. I think you have to, if you have an authentic a uh, possibility that you might attend an interview, accept it. And then if something changes, if you must decline, decline. I would wonder if you waited to RSVP because you were hoping to hear from another program, do you risk losing your spot in the interview process if you just hold out? Well, you know, some program directors that I uh, talk to, you know, many of them will send out correspondence that looks something like this. Uh, Dear Dr. Walji, we would like to interview you for our CARMS program. Please reply by this date. And if you don't um, accept the interview by that date, then you will know that you risk losing it. So many programs, and again, the process is so large, and I, I can't say with absolute confidence that it's standardized to the same degree everywhere in terms of the communication from programs about interviews, but usually there'll be some uh, indication of when they would like you to reply by. I don't think I'd ever be worried about, you know, if I don't reply within the hour that I'm going to lose a spot. I think I would always respond as quickly as possible to interviews off the wait list. I wouldn't just intuitively, I wouldn't necessarily expect that if a program was pulling you off an interview wait list, that they would automatically give you a deadline. But um, again, difficult to say that unequivocally because of the, the number of variables and programs that we're talking about across the country. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I mean, I remember going through the CARMS process myself and always hesitating on how quickly, just mm -hmm. as you mentioned, do you respond within the hour? Do you wait a day? Is that going to jeopardize your, your place? So I think that's really helpful. The second theme of questions that we got from listeners was about strategies and the rank order list in particular. So in your opinion, is it better to go unmatched or match and then switch later. What are your thoughts and would a candidate be stigmatized if they were to go unmatched one year? How does the program view these candidates? I have two comments that might seem as if they are contradicting one another. The first comment is nobody should ever rank a program that they truly, truly, truly in their heart of hearts, don't want to be a part of. So for example, you know, when I was a resident, if my only options had been um, to rank, for example, a surgical program where I don't believe I have any skill, talent, or the required uh, commitment to complete a surgical residency, I probably would have been better to go unmatched and figure out 
something else for myself or another path. So if there's an absolute sense of complete and total mismatch, and that can include in your backup strategies, one question I used to get frequently as an associate dean had to do with using something as a backup. And people would say, you know what, I've been told I need a backup. But the thing is, I only want to do X. And for those people, when I've really fleshed out what their situation is and what's behind their thinking, you know, sometimes I'll say, I think you should just go ahead and rank programs in the sphere of X. And for some people, I would say, I think you should really just stay within your sphere and it's reasonable to take your chances because of all these other circumstances. But the flip side of that is I think that has to be such a strong conviction within you that you absolutely cannot in a million years imagine yourself doing something else, you know, to really take that chance of going unmatched. So I think one of the key questions to me when you're looking at making these choices, do I take a bigger risk of going unmatched by having a shorter rank order list? Or do I rank a whole bunch of programs, including things that I really may not be particularly passionate about? To me, the deal breaker question is, how strongly do you feel about not doing the things that appear much lower on your rank order list? So many people will have second, third, and fourth choices, right? And they don't feel deeply enthusiastic at that moment in time about those choices because their heart is set on something else. But they also don't feel that doing those things is the equivalent of a prison sentence. They have some sense that they could have a satisfactory career in one of those other fields. Some people feel the exact opposite. The things that are further down as their potential backups, they really believe they could not have a satisfying career and quality of life that they're looking for and a type of professional experience and those other things. In general, intentionally going unmatched is a very poor strategy. So sometimes we'll have people who say, you know what, I'm only going to rank this program. And if they don't match me because I'm only going to rank one program, I'm going to see what's available in the second round and take my chances. I strongly recommend against that strategy. It's a lottery strategy. It's a real gamble. And a few other factors come into play that are hard to be aware of as students. So, for example, on match day, let's say you wanted plastic surgery and you decided to back up with family and you open the match results and you see that you're in family medicine and darn it, there's one plastic surgery spot available in another city in another province and you think, I was a complete fool. I would have been better to take my chances and wait around till the second round of the match. You know, you have no idea what is going on in those other cities. You don't know what other candidates locally may have, may already be known to those other programs, may be seen as desirable candidates for those programs. You don't actually know all the things that could be happening with that spot in terms of other viable contenders. And very often, not always, but often in my experience, those spots when they are available, those sort of rare second round, people think of them sometimes as premium spots, they'll often end up being filled by people who are already known to that program, people who are applying to some other similar program and are local candidates. And I do think nationally, more and more, we are seeing strategies of programs taking care of their own. Um, here at the University of Manitoba, we have an excellent supernumerary policy, which means that if we have candidates who have not matched at the end of round two, despite best efforts to follow our advice, some reasonability and plasticity in their approach, not being too dogmatic in terms of what they'll rank, and the absence of any professionalism uh, issue or or reason that we don't think they would make reasonable candidates for the match, are 
uh, university has created spots at the end of round two for those people who were unmatched. So gambling with that, though, those spots are not historically in the super competitive specialties. They're usually uh, in programs where there's some kind of need and also where there's some kind of flexibility for the candidate. But for example, we're not creating spots in emergency medicine, which is highly competitive, or general surgery, which has become highly competitive. In terms of, you know, going to programs and trying to pitch yourself and then Seeing a lot of, I mean, even friends of mine having to go through it, the second iteration of CARMS and trying to get people to believe that, okay, yes, I did work 14 years of my life, if they've done a master's or something else before, to try to become a cardiologist, for example. And I'd like to stay in Montreal because my family is here. And then seeing that kind of disappointment when they have to grapple with ranking mm-hmm. a program halfway across the country is super hard. Um, so just speaking about matching and the unknowability about the rank order list and what that means in your life. I remember the fear you have when you're putting your rank order list together and you really have to start to imagine yourself living in, let's say you ranked UBC and you're from Toronto to see yourself. Can I see myself living in Vancouver for two, three years, depending on how long the program is? One of the things that I found difficult through the CARMS process was just trying to understand exactly where I might land. So you want to rank all the programs that you're interested in, but you also have to remember that that does mean possibly living in a different city, sometimes far away from family and friends. And you really do have to go through the process mentally of trying to see, will I be okay with living out there? Will I be supported? And I think that's something very important when candidates think about their rank order list is not just the program because so much of medicine requires strength outside of the hospital. I think that is such an excellent and critical point, Manitza. And, you know, one thing I sometimes have talked to students about is trying to really understand their priorities before they come up with a strategy. And to me, that concept of where do you have infrastructure? Where do you feel comfortable? Where do you have a sense of knowing what you're entering into? You know, which cities might you have a relationship with based on places you've studied before or where you have family supports, etc. I think it's just absolutely critical. And so sometimes I talk to people about trying to get a sense of trying to label their strategy beforehand and give it a name. And I talk about a city first strategy, you know, is the most important thing for you to be in Toronto, because that's where your family is. And that's where your partner is, or that's just where you feel the most supported. And if your city is the most important thing, if you're a city first strategy, you may find that you have more flexibility in terms of the programs that you rank, you may include programs that are larger with a different ratio of spots to candidates versus just focusing on uh, smaller programs versus if your strategy really is the single most important thing for me at the end of this is to become a surgeon, you may have to abandon some of that flexibility about the city. Or you may find, okay, I'm going to look at possibly creating an application that will allow me to apply to more than one type of surgical specialty within this city. But I I really always encourage people to think more about the city than the program. And in fact, unless there's a reason to not go to a program. So let's say they've consistently heard that there are uh, challenges at a particular program. That again, you might factor that in, but I tend to think that programs 
you know, we're, we're a heavily regulated academic environment in the sense that everything starts and ends with the Royal College, right? And so really, I tend to think that programs all at the end of the day, probably the single biggest determinant in the absence of a red flag with a program, it really comes down to where do I feel that I can have the best shot at, you know, being successful outside of the hospital in terms of my personal life, because often that becomes a foundation on which we build the best possible professional life. For sure. I think a lot of the CARMS process is really knowing yourself. Yes. One thing you you mentioned the how deeply stressful it is, and it's probably the most, the highest number of variables that most people will ever have encountered at that point in their professional lives. You know, usually if you're applying to an undergraduate program or you're applying to medical school, there are only so many potential outcomes, right? Suddenly you're entering into a situation where you might rank 20 programs or 30 programs and the permutations of how you can rank the factors to consider are are really mathematically can become staggering very quickly. And one of the things that I like to talk to people about, you know, sometimes there's a sense of mystery of why is this so stressful? And I often talk about CARMS as bringing together so many forces and themes in a person's life um, that just kind of come to a head in this stage. You know, one is often uh, CARMS can be a stressor for romantic and personal and family relationships. Families may have expectations for us about where we go and where we end up. And those may not actually align with our wishes and dreams for our own lives. So that's one tension. The second tension is CARMS often forces people to answer the question, and address conflicts, which may be uncomfortable. And that conflict is, who am I versus who do I wish I was? So maybe you've always had a mythology or a narrative in your life that you were going to be a surgeon. Maybe you've said you were going to be a surgeon since the time when you were very young. And all of a sudden, as time has gone on, you've realized, you know, I feel like I might actually be happier doing internal medicine or doing family medicine. And maybe I actually don't feel that I have the stamina to do one of these things or that I have the commitment to do one of these things. And sometimes confronting that tension is very difficult. We like the idea of ourselves as a neurosurgeon until we suddenly get a full look at what it actually requires and the sacrifice that's required to pursue a specialty like that. And then the other things that come into play, you know, one of them is kind of mass hysteria and the contagion of the stress of our peers. And I've seen this, you know, where you'll have someone who isn't particularly stressed about the process. They're they're a strong candidate. They're going to interview well. And then they start talking to peers who are really stressed and their stress levels go up because they get the sense that, gee, if other people are really anxious about this, maybe I'm too laid back. And so that emotional influence of um, sort of how our peers influence us and influence our thinking is another layer of it. And the final thing is as a rite of passage, there's so much layering around it, so much messaging from the time you reach medical school, you see the med fours going through this process of matching. And we almost have this expectation that it's going to be this terrible, deeply stressful process. So I think those are some of the reasons why CARMS really tests the fabric of who we are and what we want most deeply and what the people around us want and how we're managing those pressures as well. As somebody who's been through the process, I think 
just hearing somebody talk from the other side, because you rarely get the opportunity to have someone speak frankly about what Mm -hmm. it means to sit on the other side of the table. And Mm -hmm. I've been fortunate enough as a resident now to sit on the other side of the table interviewing candidates. You finally see some clarity in the whole process. But when you're on the other side, you really, you really don't know yeah. what, what are people expecting? Who yeah. do you want? And for, for me, I really wanted to just know the person better during the interview and understand their story a little bit, why they were interested in medicine, why they were interested in their particular subspecialty. So in terms of interviews, I don't know what your thoughts are uh, and <laughs> tips to your listeners or readers, things that you find would be very helpful. So let's get the basics out of the way. And these are things that every single candidate should already have heard from their career counselors and associate deans. Number one, be low maintenance. So from the first point of contact that you have with a program, don't be the person sending 50 emails trying to rearrange your time. Um, Be deeply respectful, polite, and grateful in your correspondence with any administrative staff. And be as pleasant and easy to deal with as possible. Because even during this early stage, um, red flags can come up about candidates. And this will not apply to most people listening. But, you know, what I think is always a deterrent for a program is when you get any whiff that an individual might be high maintenance, you know, so for example, if you send three emails about your food preferences, when you haven't been asked at an interview uh, about your gluten intolerance, right away, these are the kinds of things that people are, their antennae are up. And also, never make the mistake of assuming that administrative staff, so the people setting up your interview with you or the residents who are involved, aren't giving feedback to the program directors. In fact, it's another red flag behavior in any situation in my life. If I hear that someone has been rude or disrespectful or curt with one of my administrative supports or someone that they've made the assumption isn't involved in the process, I assume then that that person isn't showing me their true face and that maybe I'm going to see a different side of them uh, if they show up here as a candidate in a program. So those are a couple of things that everybody should know across the board going into the process. I think if you really try to distill what most programs are looking for, they are looking for good future colleagues. When I meet residents and I meet medical students and I'm, you know, asked to write them references or I'm if I'm somehow involved, obviously I wasn't involved in CARMS when I was an associate dean because that's a conflict. But now that I have anything to do with the process again, I'm imagining five or six years from now, this person as a colleague, you know, or I'm imagining them as a senior resident or a fellow. What will they be like as my ambassador? Will they be kind to families? Will they represent my um, degree of care for patients in the way that they look after people? Will they show that same level of regard? Will they be respectful? Will they be fun? Will they be, you know, as positive as possible under deeply trying circumstances? Do they seem empathetic? Do they seem compassionate? And those are all the kinds of things in interview processes that I think 
many uh, of us are really looking for in candidates. This, will this be a good colleague, a good addition to this specialty? Now, of course, the technical aspects of things are very difficult to assess in an interview, right? So if you're applying to a surgery program, they can't assess whether you're going to be a good surgeon technically. They have to really rely on what your references have said about you. So again, I think you really have to assume that people are trying to imagine what will you be like to work with? And then you have to show them your most authentic self in that regard. I think it's so important what you said about choosing future colleagues, because really when I was lucky enough to be sitting on the other side of the table, finally interviewing candidates as part of the CARMS process, I really did just want to know, were you somebody that if I called at two in the morning about a patient that was decompensating on the ward, could I trust you? Were you reliable? And also, were you authentic during your interview process? So um, any tips on handling a question for which you can't think of an immediate answer during the interview? You know, often I advise people to respond according to the circumstance. So for example, if you get a question and you are so nervous in that moment that you can't answer, I personally, having done this for years and having been involved in CARMS for years and having been an associate program director before I was an associate dean, I think people, again, coming back to this point of authenticity, I think people have compassion for it. For example, if you say, you know what, I'm feeling a little bit nervous right now. I have to be honest. We all recognize this is a very high pressure situation and I'm finding it difficult in this moment to collect my thoughts. I'd love to come back to this question. Why would you say that? Some people might say, well, gee, that seems like a terrible thing. But the honest answer is, if that's what's happening to you, the people in the room are going to see it, right? They're going to see that you're really nervous, that you're having a hard time putting your thoughts together. And if you articulate it, you know, right away, I like that candidate more. I respect that candidate more. Now, if it's a question that you absolutely have no answer for, so, for example, what's the last book you read? Well, that's a question you probably should be prepared for, but let's imagine that you're not. So you could say, you know what, I can't think of the last book I read, but if it's okay, I'd love to tell you about the last movie that I saw or the last play that I went to because I tend to spend my free time more watching plays as a fan of the theater. So sometimes if you're really stumped, at least try to think of something that's not too much of a cognitive leap. Um if you didn't understand a question or you need it repeated, it's okay to ask for the question to be repeated again as well. And if you really can't answer a question, you won't be the first candidate that that has ever happened to. Actually, that reminds me of one more really important point. So let's say uh, someone asks you a question and you respond with something that you really would never normally say under the circumstance. So um, someone asks you about a clinical situation that you might have encountered. And so an example I can think of, um, an individual was um, once came to me and they were asked about if they could share a time when they had cared for uh, a member of a particular socioeconomic group. And that student said, well, I've never had that experience, which couldn't possibly have been correct because of the, the location of that individual's training program. And so talking that through afterwards with that individual, um, what I counseled them to say in future interviews, let's say you say something like that. And after you've said it, you realize, oh, I can't believe I just said that. You want to show some transparency of thinking. That's always absolutely fine. So you can say, can I just hit the pause button for a minute? I just said something that was totally 
incorrect. And I'm sorry, it's because I'm anxious today in this high stakes interview. I'd like to go back and correct what I said. I actually have looked after several members of this particular socioeconomic group. And here are some of the challenges that I've experienced doing that. Because sometimes I find people will say something and then they they know it isn't factually correct or it doesn't represent what they really think. And, you know, if you never go back and correct it, the interview team never knows that you recognize that there was anything wrong with what you said. However, if you stop, frame it as a problem with anxiety, go back and correct it. Actually, I would argue, and when I've been in those situations as an interviewer on the other side, I actually like that candidate even more because it says to me that they have insight. And not only that, that they're capable of the humility of correcting a mistake that they've made. And what skill could be more critical for a trainee than humility and the ability to say, I was wrong, here's why I was wrong, and now I'm fixing it. So I, that's that's another great strategy that people can use. And I think people often don't have that external permission. They've never heard that before, so they don't know that you can do that, but you can do that. Similarly, when you're being interviewed by a resident versus a program director, do you find that candidates should change their strategy? Because I've often found that perhaps you're a bit more relaxed with the resident. Should you let yourself ask different questions, make yourself approachable in a different way? In general, I would say the strategy to use is this. Go into your interview being your most authentic self with everybody. And you know, again, if you interact with the residents, the point that we were talking about earlier about how you interact with administrative staff and support staff for programs, if you treat the residents as if they are any less important as human beings than the program director, that will come through. If that's your perception, that will be picked up on by them and they will not take kindly towards it because I think we we all want to be treated as if our presence and our perspective and contribution matters. What might vary are the types of questions that you ask, of course. You, you know, you might ask the program director about how the residents get along and what the collegiality is among them. You might ask the residents that same question and you might frame it a bit differently. You might ask slightly more detailed questions about attitudes towards vacation. Do people generally leave on time at the end of, you know, mandated um, periods of work. So for example, if a shift is supposed to be 16 hours, I think it's okay to say to residents, do you find that most attendings are supportive of the new work hours? Or do you find that you get any mixed messaging about that? I, I think it's okay to really ask the questions that you need to ask to help flesh out what is the culture in this program? What seem to be the values? And it's also okay to say to the residents, can you tell me, is your cohort happy? Are you warm and collegial? Do you really find that you enjoy being with one another? Can you say more about that? You know, and I would caution against falling into um, sort of a behavioral trap that people can sometimes have where you just become a bit too candid with the residents. So for example, you know, I've heard of situations where people were interviewing for something, they were ranking that program far down the list, they weren't that serious about it. And they disclosed, you know, to the resident, they said, well, I'm not really that serious about the program. Well, why would you ever say that in any job interview? You know, that's not authentic. That's that's foolish and and a little bit disingenuous too because you can imagine that the person on the other side is feels that their time has been wasted. Now some people might say you're telling us to be authentic and you're telling us that we have to weigh all these variables why can't we say that? And I would just say there are different ways to be truthful that 
still achieve the same thing. So for example, let's say you're in Ontario and you're coming here where I am in Winnipeg to interview in one of your our programs. We know that you have no family supports here. We know that you have no connection to the city. And it's clear that you've done everything in uh, London, Ontario, and that's where everything is for you. You know, it's not hard for programs to determine that this might not be your first choice. So my answer is just, you know, don't frame it as anything other than what it is. Look for the positives in the program where you're interviewing and say, you know, boy, I really noticed that your program seems to put a lot of emphasis on making sure that residents uh, are learning bedside ultrasound. Or boy, do I ever notice that your residents really seem to get along and everyone's been so friendly. And, you know, that's avoiding a situation. You're looking at the positives. You're looking on at the things that you're seeing when you're at a program that, um, you know, attract you. But you're avoiding getting into disclosing how serious you are about a particular city. My general advice is don't do that unless, here's the asterisk, that um, if a program is unequivocally your first choice, and you know that, and that's absolutely true, part of authenticity, it's okay to say that. You know, it's okay to say, I deeply want to match to this program. My family is here. My partner is here. They're a resident in Program X. I'm impressed with your program for all the following reasons. It is my hope to, you know, match to this program, that would be my number one wish. And again, that's authenticity. You can offer that, but don't say it if it's not true. Don't say it at every interview. You should really only be saying that once in your entire CARMS tour at the program where you feel that that's the case. So how does the panel score the interview? um, And how do program directors differentiate between successful and unsuccessful candidates during one of those interviews? I think the one point I would make about this is that processes are still somewhat dissimilar across the country. So I think any blanket answer to that question runs the risk of not being applicable to programs in different centers. Some universities have made more of an effort to standardize their processes. And I think in the future, we'll see even more standardization across the board at both the university and national level. But at the moment, I think it's difficult to answer that question without referring to specific programs, and then that advice may not be applicable to the program where you are applying. So we had a few questions about some tough situations. Interviewers generally aren't supposed to ask about personal things like marital status, but there are definitely questions about resiliency that come up during an interview. And is it good or important to mention a partner or a significant other or family supports? Um, or is it better to just steer clear of marital status, etc.? I think it really depends. And, you know, when students come and ask me those questions, often what I try to do is flesh out, why would this come up in your particular case? And does it help create a more fulsome understanding of why you might want to match to that place. So for example, if you have a partner who is from a particular city that you're looking to apply to, or you have a partner who has matched already, they're a year ahead of you and they're in another program and that's the real driver for why you want to be in that city. Or you have a partner who is involved in a particular field of work that can only be carried out in a larger center, a particular place. In my view, it's okay to mention all of those things because they round out the story, you know, of why you're looking at being in a particular place. Often, 
when we meet people for the first time and they're applying to a program, what you're really trying to put together in the back of your mind, among other things, is why does this person want to be in this program? And if you provide, you know, a reason that helps build that case um, for why you're committed to this particular program, then I think that's helpful information. And I would never avoid disclosing it in the kinds of scenarios just mentioned. Similarly, speaking to female residents, there's often questions about the culture around maternity and having children during residency. And that's always a question I think that comes up during the more informal dinners or conversations that happen before the interview process. Is that something that you shouldn't address at all? Yeah, that's a very a tough question. Um, you know, and I say this as uh, the mother of three relatively young children and as someone who uh, has taken three year-long maternity leaves during the course of my own professional life. I always worry in the culture that we still live in, and I've worried this about it myself at some points, and I certainly worry about this for my female residents and students. I worry about the possibility of an individual being subtly penalized for answering that question. And I think it it would not be reality-based for me to say otherwise. So my advice, candidly, would be don't bring it up. Um, don't shy away from the topic. You know, if you're there and, and somebody raises it and offers that information, great. But remember that your right to take a maternity leave and the rules under which you can do so within a program are beyond the jurisdiction of that program. A particular program director doesn't have the right to decide whether or not you're entitled to a maternity leave. You are. My advice in general is don't bring it up. Um, if we only ever did things based on the previous experiences of those who have gone before us, and in particular, I think this applies to the concept of taking a maternity leave and building your career as a as a female, we would never make any progress. As one of my wise mentors many years ago said to me, there's never a good time to have children. And if you're going to have children in your residency, know that the university has to offer you supports and that that's a human right to have a child and take time off. So whether you're doing that in a supportive context or whether you're going to be a bit more of a trailblazer, I would say leave that off the table. It probably doesn't belong at that interview. Now, having said that, if you're in an interview and uh, part of the informal part of it, you're being interviewed by five women and they're telling you about their children and their family lives, uh, or if several people on the panel interviewing you are visibly pregnant, then that might be your signal that, hey, this is clearly a place where bringing this up, the culture is encouraging me to do so. In that situation, I might advise differently. And another thing, you know, you never want to leave an interview not ranked somewhere thinking, gee, did I not get ranked competitively because I asked about having a child in residency? And maybe that has nothing to do with it. Hopefully it has nothing to do with it. But I don't think you ever want to give yourself reason to second guess the outcome of an interview by bringing up topics where theoretically um, there's still the, not just theoretically, but realistically, there still is the possibility of some prejudice. Speaking of prejudice, one of the readers had brought up a question about disclosing personal mental health struggles during an interview, uh, and in particular during a psychiatry interview. I don't know what your thoughts are about uh, disclosing your personal story with mental health during an interview. 
Yeah, another great question. And again, I think it comes back to the point of authenticity. But first, I just want to go sideways a little bit to a related point. Um, and that point is the concept of staying ahead of a narrative. And we talked about that a little bit, I think, in one of the blogs in terms of writing personal letters. But let's imagine that you're a candidate who has a one-year gap in your training because you took a leave uh, for some type of medical reason, um, whatever the cause. You know, you know that people looking at that, if they don't know why you were off school for a year, it's always an elephant in the room. Right? So my advice is always quickly shut down the, the energy that people are wasting wondering what happened during that year by by addressing it. And you don't have to be particularly detailed, right? The level of detail is absolutely up to you. I don't think you ever want to overshare because nobody wants to spend half the interview hearing somebody's personal or medical stories in that way. But I think it's important to provide context, especially if that context has clearly made you a better physician and you can clearly reflect ways to the committee and your representation of that experience that it has done so. So for example, in a psychiatry interview where I think, you know, many times we end up doing things academically and clinically that we have some personal um, interest or experience in, you know, we've had a family member with disease X and that's what set the stage for us to pursue a particular field. And actually, I think it's, you know, reasonably common that people end up in fields where they have some interest in mental health, where they've had either an experience with a family member or a friend or a call colleague or themselves that has really cultivated their empathy towards people who suffer from those same problems. And I think if that's your framing, I think it might be okay. Now, you have to remember one practical question that program directors will always ask universally. You know, if you're framing um, an experience that you've had with a particular challenge in your life, and you're talking about perhaps time that you've missed during your program, one fair question that they will find themselves wondering is, will this mean that they'll accept you into the program and you won't be able to complete the residency or you're going to be, you know, need to take several more years off during the course of your training? I think it would be unrealistic to say that people won't wonder those kinds of things in their head. So my comment is then in your sharing, you just have to frame, um, you know, you have to sort of anticipate and be able to address those concerns. So for example, you asked a question about mental health, which I, I think is a great one. And, you know, I've often counseled students to write letters and help them prepare for interviews where if they wish to do so, and they feel it's a critical part of understanding who they are, they may share something like, for example, that they have suffered from, uh, let's say, chronic anxiety for most of their lives. And finally, in medical school, they addressed that. They got the appropriate medical and therapeutic tools to really deal with that challenge and what a dramatic impact it had on their quality of life. And as such, they are now passionate about supporting other individuals who have experienced that problem, are struggling with the associated stigma and how it's made them infinitely more empathetic than it, they ever could have been before towards that problem. I think a framing like that is wonderful. I've seen dozens and dozens of students write letters with that same basic framing of some challenge that they've had. And I read that letter and I say, I'm immediately drawn to that person. You know, you kind of want to champion them. And we also know that 
you know, many of us have these kinds of challenges in our lives, right? We know the kinds of issues that we deal with as physicians and that medical students, residents, and practicing doctors are all struggling with across the board. So I think bringing something like that up, framing it wisely, authentically, and from a place of strength and what I call sort of a lessons learned approach, who can argue with the maturity that's demonstrated in a in an articulate and eloquent um, argument like that? Now, look at this from the other side. If your gut tells you, I don't feel comfortable doing this, I don't want to reference this, I don't want to reveal this in any way, then don't do it. It really is one of those things where you have to follow, you know, what what seems right for you individually. And we all have different set points for privacy and a different level of comfort in terms of sharing our personal narratives. You know, I've had individuals who have had experiences, um, let's hypothetically say, with a family member who was ill. And even talking about that experience is still so raw and so personal that they may become tearful or emotional. And I would say, if in an interview, you're going to be so worried and so stressed about the idea that you're going to become emotional talking about, for example, a sibling who had a critical illness, um, then you may need to reflect on whether you want to bring that up because you don't want to be totally incapacitated in the interview from an emotional perspective. So those are all things where you want to do some work ahead of time with your career counselors, the individuals at your school who are tasked with helping you prepare for interviews and you want to test the waters. So Dr. Horton, do you have anything else that you want to share? You know, I think the biggest thing I would say to everybody who's listening is it ties back into a point that you made earlier. This is a really stressful process. If you feel overwhelmed, if you feel like you are just panicking, if you feel like the unknowns and the stressors associated with this are just pulling you underwater, the first thing I would say is get help. Talk to somebody about that. Talk to your associate dean. Talk to your career counselors. Talk to the counselors associated with your program. Don't suffer through all that alone because decompressing is really helpful. Putting some of your fears and anxieties out into the open and getting perspective on how realistic those fears are um, can be very therapeutic and very helpful. The flip side of that is I would say some anxiety associated with this is normal. and that's unfortunately part of going through the process. But the majority of you listening, you'll match. The majority of you will match successfully to something that you want. And for anyone who unfortunately is in the unenviable position of having to go through round two, the majority of you will find supports and spots as well. And just know that the array of resources for you at your particular school are all there and ready and waiting to support you. So just if you're finding this process overwhelming and the stress is really keeping you up at night and just making you feel like you can't cope, talk about it, seek help, seek supports. That's not a problem with you. It's a reflection of how stressful this process actually is. And all those pressures and stressors and themes of life that we talked about just coming to a head. So talk it out, get support, get help, and you can get through this. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about this whole process. Thank you so much, Manisa, for being willing to relive the CARMS process and, and sharing your wisdom as well. And I know both of us would wish to everybody listening, good luck and you'll get through it. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 